Hey, y'all, I wanted to take a second before we get into this episode to remind you that the show is also available on YouTube. And starting from episode number 101, it's all in 4K. I'm trying to make the best video podcast I can, so definitely check it out and subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Go to youtube.com slash at progressionspod or hit the link in the show notes. If you're not getting enough progressions and you want to get even more thoughts on creativity, productivity, and growth in music, then you should sign up for my newsletter. You'll find a brief article in each monthly edition as well as updates on progressions and myself. I'm also sharing some workflow hacks and links to stuff that I found interesting or helpful. So it should be fun. If you want to stay up to date on the latest and get all the bonus stuff, go to travisferentz.com slash subscribe or click the link in the show notes. Hey, welcome to Progression, Success in the Music Industry. I'm your host, Travis Ferentz, and this is episode number 94. The interview this week is all about branding and marketing for producers and engineers. I sat down with mixer, educator, and brand strategist Carl Bonner for his second appearance on the show. We got into stuff like how to become irresistible to your ideal client, the importance of storytelling in your branding, identifying your niche, and the one everybody always asks about, how to charge more for your services. But first... I've been reading Rick Rubin's book, The Creative Act, A Way of Being, and I hit a passage about demo-itis. It was in a section about not losing momentum when you're in the crafting phase, as Rick calls it, of your creative act. And I'm going to share it with you all real quick. Another challenge we might call demo-itis. Demo-itis happens when the artist has clung too tightly for too long to their first draft. The danger of living with the unfinished project for too long is that the more often an artist is exposed to a particular draft of work, the more final that form can become in their mind. A musician might record a demo of a song very quickly. They could listen to it thousands of times and imagine developing it to all it can be. Yet when it comes time to actually make the best version of the song, the demo may be so ingrained in their head that any changes to it seem blasphemous. When we become overly attached to a premature version of the work, we do a disservice to the project's potential. End quote. Demoitis is something all of us in the music industry can relate to. We've all encountered it in one form or another. But for some reason, this section on demoitis hit me differently than I expected. I started thinking about my conversation with Carl in this episode, debating why the older generation of engineers disagrees with the way that the younger generation markets themselves. Then I started thinking about people that don't embrace changes in technology. An example being analog tape to Pro Tools decades ago or about people that don't raise their rates regularly and are never actively looking to expand their network of collaborators. More broadly, I thought about the sheer number of people who embrace the status quo of their career in any way. A lot of us hold on to the idea that the way something was when we started it is the best way that it will ever be, or even the only way that it will ever be. And it makes sense. The thing is fresh. It's new and exciting. Maybe to compare it to a relationship, you always reminisce about the beginning. You remember it so clearly. But isn't the most beautiful part of a relationship that it grows and develops over time, the thing that it becomes, not the thing that it was? Isn't that what you want your career or your life to be? To bring back Rick's quote, demo-itis happens when the artist has clung too tightly for too long to their first draft. A career is a lifelong pursuit and a creative act in itself. The first version is just that, the first one. It's where you start. Even if you feel you're in your second, third, or fourth version, that still doesn't mean that it has to be the last. Rick says that the artist's goal is to make the finest work they are capable of and to think in terms of timeless excellence. The first version of something is never going to be that. 
It might feel that way at the time, and you can think, it can't get any better than this. But as you experience more in your life and your career, you'll know deep down that, yes, it could probably be better. If you let yourself stay in one place, no matter how comfortable that place might be, it'll be just like Rick says, the more final that form becomes. So let me ask you, is there any part of your life that you might have demoitis? Today's guest is back for round two. Carl Bonner is a mixer, producer, and brand strategist based out of Pennsylvania. He was last on the show back in episode 57. We got into his background and his full story there. So if you like this, definitely jump back and check that out. But for Carl's return, we figured let's do a special episode all about branding and client acquisition for audio pros. So welcome back to the show, Carl Bonner. What's up, man? How are you? I am sleep deprived and over caffeinated. Awaiting the uh, arrival of our second child any day now. <laughs> so, any minute. <laughs> yeah, literally. <laughs> so we're doing this podcast in the danger zone here. Hopefully we finish. Yeah, I, I wasn't sure if this was going to happen or not. This was in our calendar in the lightest pencil shade possible. <laughs> but uh, I'm here. Yes. Yes, you are. So let, let's get into it. I First, I want to say that we're here to help people and talk about branding and getting clients and, and whatnot. We're also celebrating the fact that your course that you've been working on for years is finally live called Communicating the Care. Finally. Yes. yes. Communicating the Care. Finally. Yes. <laughs> it's been so long. <laughs> and in case ah. you didn't know, that was your biggest goal from the last time you were on this podcast. You said you wanted to finish your video course. So props on that. I didn't specify at what speed I would finish it. <laughs> I mean, no, I'm, I'll say this. Did it take me uh, two years to get it together? Yes. Could I have done it any faster? I don't think so, if I'm honest. Knowing that a lot of what I wanted to do was to disprove my own observations and experiences. Yeah, yeah. I really wanted to test it instead of falling into the alluring trap of just making a course about things that I think and... Who cares if it's actually based on reality? <laughs> you know, I didn't want to do that. Yeah, well, it is based on reality. So I was going to say, let's let's make this like, we'll call it our YouTube hook moment. Tell, okay. tell people who this conversation is for and why your opinion matters. Okay, well, I would say the course and, and this conversation is directed towards passionate studio professionals like yourself who want to be able to become irresistible to their ideal clients and not just attracting better clients and not just attracting more clients, but finding more joy in the client relationships that they build. What I try to teach in the course is how to communicate your unique tastes, experiences, and perspectives to attract the kinds of clients that are going to find the most value in not just what it is that you do, but the decisions behind why you do it the way you do it. Amazing. It's very, uh, very well put. Have you been uh, possibly doing a lot of uh, rehearsal for launching this thing? <laughs> no, actually. I've been like, you know, editing it and like seeing myself flub those kind of lines a bunch. But, you know, I did, I did spend some time trying to get my elevator pitch pretty good. And I yeah. still ad lib it a bit every time. You have to, you got to keep it real. Got to keep it real. Well, I, so I had an idea that I think could be fun. And I think I'm, tough enough to take the punches in a public forum. But I figure maybe a good way to kind of go through this process for 
engineers and producers is to break down my brand and what maybe I'm doing right and wrong. If you're, if you're up to potentially embarrass me on my own podcast, I, I think I can handle it. I'll say this. I have no goals of embarrassing you. But you're going to? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I mean, embarrassment is in the eye of the beholder. I'm sure I will find some things that I would present to you as things to potentially consider tweaking, but I am not the kind of person in general that's going to look for problems and just call you out on shit. I'm not going to just like find something wrong with it and just like be a troll and make fun of it and then walk away. You know, like I want to say like, okay, I see what you were going for. I understand why you choose to do this or say this, but I feel like based on the context of what I know about you and your goals and your ideal clients, maybe here's a different approach you could take. Here's a different perspective that you could take as you are making these tweaks. You know, I don't want to be a jerk unless you deserve it. If you really deserve it, I'll, I'll be a jerk, but I don't think that's going to happen. Well, I guess we'll, I guess we'll find out before we kind of get into just having a conversation about all that. Are there any concepts or ideas that you think we should discuss beforehand? Any ideas you want to lay out there to help people with some background? Ooh, oh man. Well, you know, we're talking about branding, right? So there's a great branding expert, author, speaker uh, named Marty Neumeyer, who has written, I don't know, 17 billion books on this stuff. I have been drawn to his way of describing what a brand is because I think it makes a lot more sense to me as a creative professional. And the way that he describes it, I'm not going to try to like pretend that I'm the person that came up with this. You know, the way he describes it is that you know, the brand is not your logo. The logo is a tool that the brand can use, but it's not the brand itself. It's not a product or a service. Even if people are talking about buying this brand or that brand, the product is not the brand. The brand is the customer's gut feeling about you. I mean, you could say reputation is kind of a similar concept, but really the, the difference is every customer is going to have a different idea of what your brand is. Everybody's going to have a different perception of, of you, right? So as, as an example, like, you know, you've known me for a couple of years now. You have a good idea of who I am, what I'm all about, what I like, what, my, what it's like to have a conversation with me, like how, you know, if I say something really snarky and sarcastic, like, you know how I mean it, right? I do. <laughs> Whereas somebody listening to this podcast and hearing my stupid voice for the first time might not know that and they're going to have a different perception of it. So even though it's still the same conversation, the same, you know, the same thing being said, the same video being watched, whatever, uh, the context that leads up to that moment is going to shape their perception of me, of you, of whoever we're talking about. Yeah. Right. So that's why branding is so important because People will have those gut feelings about you, whether you want them to or not, whether you try to get one from them or not. So that's kind of the dangerous part is when you don't pay attention to how you're presenting yourself, then the dangerous part is that you have no control over how they feel about you, right? And not that you ever will have full control, but if you are a very prolific engineer, producer, artist, and nobody knows it outside of your circle. There's nothing for them. There, there's no way for them to know how good you are. There's no way to know what your personality is like. Mm -hmm. There's no way to know 
you know, what the experience of working with you is going to be. Yeah. You know, are you trustworthy? Do you kind of check all the boxes that I'm looking for in a mixing engineer? Yeah. If I have no information other than your Discogs page or whatever, I'm guessing, right? Like, and and our our clients and our, ourselves, there's we have way too much just generalized anxiety to want to have to guess when it comes to <laughs> trusting somebody with our art. True, true. Yeah, I totally agree with you that everybody kind of has their own, you know, view of of what your brand might be. Do you think that it's crucial that every person has the same opinion? Is that the goal here, or is that the opinion that? Each person generates at least in the, you know, vein of what you want it to be. It's less about trying to have a unified perception of you. Yeah. Um, I think what's more important is that the people that I want to work with, the people that I really feel like I'm going to find the most joy in working with, it's just important that they have a good, you know, a good brand of me. It's kind of a weird way to say it, but I want them to have a good gut feeling about me. <laughs> the The example that I like to use is that as a mixing engineer, I love being very collaborative with the artists. I love chasing after happy accidents and crazy ideas, even if they're not explicitly a mixing thing or, or a a decision or part of the process that is typically categorized as mixing. And I have a conversation with my clients before we start anything, before I ever like even agree to take me on a project, just to make sure that if I hear something that I think is going to make the song better, I want to make sure that I'm allowed to try it. They're always allowed to veto it. They're always allowed to say, no, I don't like that as much. Let's go back to the other way. But there are artists that want to have an engineer that comes in makes just takes what's there and just rebalances it and makes it sound polished and and that's they don't want any kind of outside input in the creative process and that's awesome that's totally cool you know but those are not the kind of artists that I get the most in I just don't get the same kind of enjoyment out of that so I want to make sure that my branding you know my the, the things that I'm doing to try to shape those gut feelings I want it to be very clear that I love the collaborative process and that I love to I, I love to be weird and you know be snarky sonically as well you know like do, do weird fun stuff and with with the audio because the clients that don't want that 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 don't want that input I want them to be turned off I want them to filter themselves out yeah and that's what what strong branding does it doesn't just attract the kind of clients that you do want but it repels the kind of clients that you don't want that's interesting because you know the average. We'll use audio engineers, mixers and engineers, because I just feel like we really are guilty of this. Yeah. We'll do anything. <laughs> You're just like every gig, just yes, 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 yes. And, and you know, you and I have talked about this and I've talked about this with other people. Like eventually you just can't do that anymore. So yeah. I think for a lot of people that are starting out, the idea of doing something to represent yourself out in the world that's going to result in less people calling you sounds so counterintuitive particularly in, you know, the first 10 years of an audio engineering career. The misconception, I believe, that a lot of engineers have and, and producers have is that because they're turning away work, therefore, you know, they're going to be able to find less clients, right? 
Yes, there's there's like a FOMO. There's like, if I don't do this record, I might not get the Grammy that that record gets, even though the chances of that record getting a Grammy are, you know, very low. The chance of that, the <laughs> chance of that record getting, you know, more than the less than a thousand streams, you know, <laughs> on Spotify is is pretty low, realistically. It's true. You know, but I think what what I try to I try to remind myself when I was making the switch into really trying to to be more focused. It's that there are over 20 million songs per year coming out. And that's like just on Spotify. And the number is going up every year. Yeah. Right. Just because only a small number of the clients that I've worked with are what I would consider my ideal clients, or they are a, a small amount of the services that I provided, or they, you know, like maybe I've, maybe I really just love mixing but i've only done a handful of mixing projects total and i don't want to turn down other stuff because i really want to just take whatever money i can can get just because i've only so far had x amount of mixing projects doesn't mean that that's all that is available out in the world right and yeah this is going to probably ruffle some feathers i think but the kinds of clients that want a generalist and they want someone to be a one-stop shop are generally the kind of clients that want wholesale pricing and the clients that really care and they really want the best product. They want the specialists. I agree. I agree. And they're also the, the generalists. They are, they are fickle and they most likely my experience is that they won't return. Yeah. Whether you deliver 110% or 10%, it doesn't matter. They're moving on to the next thing because they're also the types of people that associate the success of their song to everybody that was involved. Okay, didn't do well. Mixer, no more. That studio, not again. Mastering, no, uh-uh, because it's not their fault, <laughs> obviously. Yeah. But yeah, I, I agree with that completely. And, and I think the same can be said about when people worry about, when they have a hesitation towards delegating as well or narrowing down whether it's narrowing down the styles of music that they work on or the genres of music that they work on, or it's narrowing down the part of the process that they are involved in, whether it's going from doing full productions down to just mixing and mastering or going from mixing and mastering down to just mastering or just doing session drumming, whatever that that is. There's this fear that there's only X amount of artists that want to hire me right now and therefore, that proportion is always going to be the same. There's only ever going to be that many people that want to hire me. But the thing is, when you start to really narrow down your focus, and not just narrowing down what you do, but narrowing down how, narrowing down how you present yourself and what you present yourself as doing, you'll realize that there are a lot more clients that are looking for a specialist. And also, because they're hiring a specialist, they're willing to spend the money for a specialist. Yeah. You know, like I find a lot of value. An example I use in the course. Okay. Like I go to Starbucks pretty much every morning because I value the experience of, you know, getting my uncooperative daughter out the door to school, dropping her off, swinging by the drive through on the way to the studio. It's like a, a mental refresh for me. Usually, like past couple of weeks, what I've been doing is I'll get my cold brew and then I'll park in the parking lot and I'll film uh, 
my, you know, TikTok or reel for the day, just in my car. And that's become a bit of like a palate cleanser for me every morning, kind of getting me into that, that space. And could I make cold brew at home for cheaper? Yeah, of course. But to me, it's not just the cold brew itself. It's that whole experience that I'm having. And the cold brew is just kind of the, the conduit yeah. for that experience. Yeah. And on the flip side, my in-laws would never spend, you know, more than, you know, 99 cents at a gas station for, <laughs> for, for coffee, but they will have every cable TV channel known to man and every streaming service because having all of that at their fingertips is valuable to them. That's very important to them. Whereas my wife and I, we watch like the ball drop on New Year's Eve and sometimes the Super Bowl if we feel like it, but usually we're at somebody else's house anyway. So like we just have a couple streaming services that like our daughter likes and that we watch and we don't even watch TV like regular TV other than yeah, New Year's Eve and maybe the Super Bowl. Yeah. And that's it. Yeah. So we would never find value in, I don't know, like $400 in, you know, a cable bill, but my in-laws absolutely do. And they scoff when I talk about, you know, my cold brew being five bucks, right? Because it's all about context and perspective. And, you know, knowing who your target audience is and, and making yourself seem obvious as the option to them. Yeah. And when you're a generalist, it's a lot harder to find those people that value the experience because they're looking for the price. They're deciding based on price. They're not deciding based on experience. If you're enjoying this episode, then please consider pulling your phone out, tapping that share button, and sending this to one person that you think would enjoy it. Obviously, it would be huge for me, but it could be even more game-changing for that person. You just never know what can inspire or help someone else out. I want to take a second to tell you about Secret Sonics, a podcast by Ben Wallach and Carl Bonner. Secret Sonics is one of my favorite shows, and it's now double amazing with the addition of Carl Bonner as a co-host. Ben and Carl have teamed up to discuss the real-world trials and triumphs of music production. They cover it all from mixing and studio tricks to branding and mindsets. If you're a fan of progressions, you'll be a fan of Secret Sonics. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts or hit the link in the show notes. I want to go back. Let, let's go. Let's let's throw me under the bus a little bit. So the quote that you used in the course, which I, I watched the, a pre-release of, your brand isn't what you say it is. It's what they say it is, which is basically yes. what you were talking about earlier. Yeah. What do you think the best way for someone to identify what other people think of them? Like, like if I were to ask you what my brand is, what do you think it is? I want, I'm curious to see if it aligns with what I imagine it is. I'm putting you on the spot here. You have to like make some shit up about me. I'm sorry. You're putting yourself on the spot. <laughs> well, I'm, I can take it. I can also edit this, so it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, I'll, so in this part of the video, I'll just move my mouth and you'll just... Uh, you know, we'll get Lego Carl in here for this. Get Lego Carl in here to, to, yeah, say nothing but nothing but wonderful things. Well, you know what? Let's do this. Let's do a little brand audit. Oh God! Okay, live. Okay. All right, let's do it. So I brought water. Should I brought a beer? No, I'm not, not going to say no. So let's let's do this first. Share screen, Google. All right. Can you see that? Oh, the website. I haven't been over here in a second. Well, that says something, doesn't it? <laughs> so to save us all the misery of listening to Carl read things off my webpage and sit through long pauses, I've opted to clip this segment out. 
But fill you in, things did not go so well. Carl found some leftover lorem epsom filler text in my contact form, and we all learned that I had apparently inserted podcast reviews into the footer of every page on my site. So all in all, it's probably best that you guys missed it. And I want to defend, well, I don't want to defend it. I want to completely agree with you because ever since we hung out last time and I've met so many people on the podcast and like, I think about the brand of the podcast and, and how that, that works, obviously more so than I think about my own brand as an engineer mixer. I see in the last couple of years, I've started to notice that people don't really seem to care about the homepage of my website anymore which is like basically the main page of countless engineers who are far more successful than me, right? It's all just album covers, right? Mm -hmm. And credits don't seem to connect with people the way that they used to, I think because the internet allows you to get to know people. Yeah. And I'm assuming you would agree with that. I feel like people are now being drawn to a lot of what you teach and what you execute, which is you know, putting your personality out there for people to connect to. And then they can go and see, oh, this guy does dope records too. But I was going to work with him before I saw these names. As opposed to 15 years ago, it was like, what are your credits? Cool, here's my money. Exactly. And the the example that I use to explain this to some of the more, what's a nice way of saying old heads? <laughs> you know, like people that, that have been in it for a much longer time. The whole, per, you know, the personality side of it is a lot more familiar to them in the context of touring musicians, right? Mm -hmm. So one thing I learned in the beginning of my career, I started my career out as a session drummer and touring drummer. And one of the things that I learned very early on was that at any given time, there are a thousand drummers that could play the songs as well as me or better than me. But if I can be the one that they want to have in the van with them for six weeks, I'm going to get the gig. Yeah. So that idea, that concept is nothing new. It's just something new to the audio side because before having the ability to create really top level end results, you know, if you want to base things based on the results, it was a lot more difficult and exponentially more expensive to get those results 20 years ago. Yeah. But now, like, you know, it, it's so overstated by this point in 2023 that you know, you could have a hit record in your bedroom. Like you could have a hit record in the trunk of a car, you know, and it's, you could, you could probably at this point, like record a hit record on like the ATM touchscreen somewhere. So that like the end result is no longer the thing that sets you apart. That's true. You know, it's, it's the journey of getting there. It's not the destination. It's the journey of getting there. And that's when it comes to finding getting people to find value in Travis, right? They will find value in the journey of the music making progress uh, process of making it with you. You know, the end result isn't always the top priority, you know, because you can, I'm sure you've heard stories where the mix sounded great, but they were a pain in the ass to work with and yeah. they were always late on delivery or they always hassled. It made them feel like belittled for wanting to give revision notes or whatever. Like there's all sorts of just awful ways that engineers and producers have treated clients in the past. And all of a sudden it went from artists having to deal with that because getting the quality level was worth putting up with the bullshit. And now it's like, Oh no, they don't have to put up with the bullshit anymore. Yeah, that's true. 
That's true. So that's what I would say. Your your thought of, or the, the comment you made about making the personality much more prominent and public-facing, as opposed to being something that somebody only learns when they're when they've already hired you and they're in the room with you. Yeah. It's a, it's a very different approach. And I think the world's better off for it personally. Yeah. Well, I think more people are probably working with people they connect with as opposed to working with who the label assigned, you know? Yeah. And especially with being able to work remotely now and collaborating remotely, the, the number of people that you could connect with personally is no longer just a small fraction of the number of local artists that are within, you know, an hour drive and willing to work with you. Yeah. Now it's like, okay, the entire population of the world <laughs> is your, you know, the, the big pool of people and you can be picky. You can, you know, be picky, not just about the music. You can be picky about the music too, but being picky with the kind of experience that not only you want to give to the clients, but also the kind of experience that you want to have as the service provider. You know, you can make decisions based on the kind of quality of life you want to have. Yeah. Not just who's going to, you know, be willing to pay the rate. Yeah. Or the people that, that find the most value in your creative decision-making and your perspectives, they're also the ones that are going to be the ones that are willing to pay for it. So the people that want to pay you the most money and are willing to pay you the most money, more often than not, are the ones that, you know, really value your input. Yeah. And there is that meme trope whatever of like you know the $50 client uh versus a $5000 client mixed notes and to a degree that's a bit exaggerated but i think there is some truth to it in the sense that the people that actually value your input into it are going to be the ones that are willing to pay it and the ones that are less concerned about your input and more concerned about their own budget probably going to be a pain in the ass because their the budget is their priority not the song the budget is the priority not their experience yeah that that was really well put that that's one of the best ways i've i've seen that laid out because yeah it's totally true the the higher paying gigs are usually the ones that go down easier and i've always just you know i agree with that meme but i never thought about that angle that you just presented which is the fact that the people are that are willing to pay more care more about working with you than the other people. The other people are just trying yeah. to hit a hit a number. We need to get this done for 250, you know. Yeah. And, and I think that meme is often used as a way to try to like, you know, go on a forum and like shit on clients that don't want to pay money. But it's really if you're not taking charge of, you know, their perception, their their customer perceived value, you know, of which we'll talk about in a second, of your service then it's on you for having clients only willing to pay 50 bucks. You know, that's not their fault. That's your fault. Actually, I'm thinking about my experiences just like buying more and more things off of Amazon over the last few years. And I've, I've hit this point now where like, there is so much garbage coming my, in the mail that I now have, I think, okay, this is something that I want to pay very little money for. And then there's, this is something that I want to be good and not break and function and, you know, be solid. Yeah. And I don't go to the lowest bidder, which is the internet, obviously. Yeah. So yeah, it, it's funny. These, all these things are like inside of you, but you never think about them in the, in the, you know, perspective of your, your career or what you're doing. It's always, even though you're doing the same thing that other quote consumers are doing to you, 
Yeah. It's a good flip. Yeah. You you have preferences. You have like whether it's, you know, the a preference of what sandwich you're gonna get at a particular restaurant or your your preference of what gas station you like to go to. Yeah. You know, you have these preferences, whether you're consciously making them or not. And your potential clients are looking at you in the exact same way. It's true. You were going to talk about something. Customer perceived value. Yes. Can you define and lay that out for people? That's essentially going back to the example I used with the Starbucks cold brew experience uh, compared to the uh, cable channels experience. I perceive a higher value to that cold brew than my in-laws do. And my in-laws have a higher perceived value of the TV stations than I do. Right. So much like your brand where all of your customers, the potential clients and and customers are going to have their own gut feeling, their own kind of their own personal interpretation of your reputation. Right. The same thing is going to be with the value of it. Some people are going to find a lot of value in the things that I do. And some people are not. And the example earlier when I said about how I love working with clients that, you know, enable me to chase after crazy ideas in their song, even if I'm just hired to mix it, but there's something in the production I think could be cool, like adding something in here or whatever. Those clients that also want that experience and they, they have that particular, that specific openness to that kind of process they find a lot of value in that because not a lot of people are willing to do that. and not a, Or at least not a lot of people are outwardly expressing that they want to do this, right? And the people that don't want that, they just want somebody to take the files and just, you know, essentially STEM master it, you know, for lack of a, a better <laughs> way to describe it. STEM mastering with like 70 tracks. They don't find that same value in what it is that I do. So they're not going to be willing to pay you know, my full rate, whereas the people that do find the value in that will see my full rate as a steal. Yeah, totally. You know, and just because I provide a service doesn't mean that every client is going to value that service or that perspective. You know, like I, just because I can, you know, program drums like a monster because I spent my, you know, early years as a session drummer and I'm a super dork for that stuff. Not everybody needs that. So if I have, if I just like charge somebody as if I'm going to do that and they don't want that, of course they're not going to pay for it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's very, if you think of it that way, you're like, oh yeah, well, of course, like I don't need, I, you don't, you shouldn't be charging me to like edit my drums when there's, there are no drums in the song. Of course, like that is obvious and makes sense. What I'm talking about is just kind of like the perspective and, and tastes and experiences and like the, the, the personality equivalent to that. Yeah. Where there are things about me that some people are going to really need on their team, like indispensable. And there's some people that could care less and they don't, they don't want anything to do with me. And that's awesome because the more people I can find that don't want me on their team, the more confident I'll be able to know, or the more confident I'll be able to be when I'm trying to find those people that really do. Cause the ones that really do want me on their team, like there's, there is no other option. Yeah. That's to me what I think the the course really drives at is trying to find those clients. I would agree with that. Yeah, everything everything that I've, I've watched and, and read in the past when you were giving the PDF out to to people, uh, I agree with that completely. Let, 
I want to ask you a couple questions, but one, was there something that happened in your life or a realization that you had where you kind of came to all these conclusions? Were you ever the say yes to everything at ev- any price? Oh, yeah. Person? What What made you become this person? Um, I, I think at first, I, I stumbled into it by, I guess, by being selfish. I don't, I don't know how else to say that. I just, I just started, you know, with the example of mixing like pop and pop adjacent stuff. I just really loved doing it. And I started doing some of it, doing some like projects here and there. And I just became obsessed. And I just was like, I feel differently when I do this. This feels qualitatively different than when I'm, you know, producing some acoustic singer songwriter track. Like I'm getting paid to do both, but this is giving me a very different personal you know, emotional reaction. Hmm. I want to do more of that, you know? So it was like chasing in a way I started out by me just like kind of chasing that high in a weird way. Um, But then what made me really double down on it and try to figure out not just what initially drove me to do that, but kind of what's going on under the hood so I can be more conscious and intentional about it was really 2020 when, you know, a lot of my friends and and peers were really, really struggling to find projects. And I was having my best year ever. And then 2021, you know, ended up being even better than that. You know, like I did, I think I mixed like something like 309 songs in 2020, something like that. But it was like, it it was the, uh, the real moment of when I kind of realized it was really the summer of 2021 when I was just trying to figure out like what was going on. Like, why am I, why is this working for me? Yeah. Why am I growing when everybody else is really struggling? Cause I know it's not because I'm a better mixer. Like I, that's for sure. Like I know I'm not just like somehow the only good mixer in the world. And that's why people are hiring me. Cause that's very obviously not the case, you know? And I just tried to, you know, through process of elimination, just, and had a lot of thinking about it, a lot of long walks, a lot of late sleepless nights trying to figure out, you know, what this was. And I just realized that it was the fact that I had been so focused on finding people making music that I really love. And also, no, once I had that realization that there were so many people making music, then I was able to be picky about the kinds of people that I wanted to work with. I just realized, oh, the more particular I am and the more focused I am, the better the results are. And the so the better the music turns out, the happier I am, the less burnout I am, the more money they're willing to pay me because they really like the results. And then the more songs that I have out, the more they're sharing it. And the more they're sharing it, the more people they're, that they're friends with who are probably also very similar to them in you know temperament are finding me and reaching out to me. And all of a sudden I was like, holy shit, this is it. It's just the more that I focus from the floodlight to the laser beam, the the the, the more of an impact I'm, I'm making. And I'm realizing that so many people are, for whatever reason, really resonating with whatever it is that I'm doing. And that's when I started the initial beginnings of this course, because I was trying to put these self-discoveries, you know, into words, not just for my, partially for myself, but also as a way for me to help my friends to try to get out of that 
COVID slump. Like, hey, this is what I was doing. Here are some practical ways I think that you could you could try it that you can adapt to your personality and your ideal clients. But here are some like kind of foundational things that I think can can help. And that went from a a notes app jarbled mess to a little seven page PDF to a 15 page PDF to a 50 page PDF to a 130 page PDF to a, you know, three hour video course, you know, and, and that was the thing is I said this in the beginning that I, I, it took me two years because I wanted to disprove these things, right? I didn't want to just make an assumption and close my eyes and hope that it was right. Like I wanted to find out if this works or not. And from helping my friends and my peers and eventually into, you know, mentoring people and, and, and coaching people through this process, I realized, oh no, this, this works. Like that's, that's it. And yeah. the people that have a grasp of how to shape those gut feelings for their potential clients, whether or not they call it branding, whether or not they are even conscious that they're doing it, but they're actively making sure that people have the gut feeling about them that they want those people to have. They're the ones that are crushing it. And the people that may be five times better at whatever the particular service is, they're struggling to get clients because nobody knows that they exist. Nobody knows what their personality is like. They don't know what the experience is like to work with them. I'm going to say, let's say you and I both send a quote to a client, the same client. Let's say that you and I are up, up against each other, right? And they don't know who's who. And the price is exactly the same. And you just tell them the price and that's it. And I tell them the same price, but I let them know like what the process is going to be like, not the logistical process of, well, I'll send you an invoice, but like, oh no, like at first, first thing I want to do is I want you to send me some references because I want to get an idea of what you're looking for, but I'd love it for you to send me a couple sentences about each reference. So that way I can understand why you're being drawn to these songs. And what I'll do is I'll probably send you a couple references of my own that I'm, I'm connecting with when I hear the demo that is kind of pulling me in that direction. And I want to see if we're on the same wavelength, kind of see where we're at. And just like that alone, they're going to hire me. Yeah. I mean, I would, you know, <laughs> and even if you did the exact same process, even if you had the same process, the same deliverables, you had the same revision limit or, or no limit, whatever. But if they don't know it, they don't know it. If you don't tell them, they don't know it. Yeah. You know, and I think that's the th the, the big key that I want anyone to, to take away from this is that it's so much easier to get a happy client to come back for a second song than it is to get someone to hire you for the first time, right? Because after that first song, they've worked with you. They've had that experience. They know what to expect. You've built that trust with them. Strong branding helps you to build that trust, give them that expectation, let them know what to, you know, what they're getting themselves into before they hire you for the first time. Yeah. And the difference is if they weren't aware of it before they hired you the first time, your price has to be lower, right? Because you need to convince them to hire you like they're taking a risk right but it's a lot easier to give a, a, a higher quote to a first-time client that already believes you're the only answer to their problem than it is to have somebody that you started with at a at a you know an intro rate then they realized oh no you are an, an indispensable part of my team 
but because you set that expectation at the lower rate, now you're kind of more or less stuck there. Yeah. And not that this is about always making more money and not that this is always about, you know, trying to squeeze every nickel out of somebody, but back to the quality of life thing. Like if you, if people are willing to pay for it and they find the value in that and they're happy to spend $400 on a cable subscription, whatever it is, they are happy. And that's going to make you a lot less stressed out about like how you're going to pay your mortgage next month, how you're going to feed your kids, you know, and you can do better work and you can be just generally happier and you'll probably get the stuff done faster and be able to do more projects because you're enjoying it and you're drawn to it. Yeah. Yeah. Like I've said so many times, every time you pause, I'm in total agreement. I, I think as we're having this conversation, my website reflects my old mindset. And I think my social media is a little bit more of my new mindset. But the more you put that stuff out there, you find people that connect with those things, whether they're podcast concepts or guests that come on this show or artists that want to work with me. The more you put it out there, the more your circle grows of people that are like-minded, which I think is kind of really what you're getting at. But that can be dangerous. Because if you're putting out the, the raw, if you're attracting the wrong kind of people, and then you start mm. growing that circle. That's true as well. Yeah. Right? I mean, I would say a, a practical example would be, like, I could make mixed tutorials until I'm blue in the face. Right. Because I would enjoy, like, I, I'm a mix engineer. So, like, yeah, I'm going to geek out about this stuff. But I could very easily just, like, make a bunch of mixed tutorials. And that's going to be fantastic if my goal is to get mixing students. If I'm trying to get artist clients, then the way that I talk about those things and the, the way that I frame it needs to be very different if I want to attract artists versus if I want to attract other producers and engineers. Yeah. Or if I want to attract artists who have their shit together versus artists who are total beginners and just starting out. And there's no right or there's no objective right or wrong, right? Yeah. But like you said, like you are going to grow that circle the more that you you put yourself out there. But unless you're putting yourself out there in the way that that is intentional and thoughtful, you could very quickly fall into the trap of making meme videos and tutorials that are going to get a lot of likes and a lot of plays, but don't bring you any meaningful career growth in the direction that you want to go. Yeah. You know, that's why I don't have a ton of followers and I don't care. Like I don't have a ton of views. I don't care because the ones that do follow me and the ones that do engage with it, like I, I'm, I'm doing okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Like, because it's, it's very targeted and I would rather have, you know, a hundred people see a video that I made and that gets five new people to get into my circle and become aware of me and start deep diving into my other videos because they found so much value in it. I'd rather have that than a video that gets a hundred thousand views and it's just like random high school kids just scrolling in English class and just like liking stuff because they have nothing else, nothing else to do. And it has no mean, it doesn't bring any, anything meaningful for me and it doesn't bring anything meaningful for them. Yeah, agreed. I think, uh, I think we talked about this the last time you were on the show, understanding who you're making your content for. Yeah. And I think it was uh, Chris Graham and, and Brian Hood on Six Figure Home Studio. One of them said something along the lines of like, if you're, well, it was probably Chris, because it sounds like a Chris thing. If you're a mastering engineer, you don't want to tell people how to master records. You want to help people finish mixes. Yeah. It's like going downstream one. It's like, okay, so if you're a tracking engineer, 
how can you help people finish writing songs? It's what this whole conversation has been about is being conscious of your brand <laughs> is essentially what we're going yeah. at because that's what's going to grow your circle. So, and not just your brand, but like what's, you know, the, the other term I didn't use was your brand identity. Okay. So if your brand is the gut feeling that people have about you and branding is, you know, the, the proactive effort that you're putting into trying to shape that, the brand identity, your brand identity is the gut feeling that you want them to have. So you not only need to understand who your ideal clients are, but also what your ideal perception of you is. Mm, yeah. And it's not about changing who you are. It's not about, it's about changing and being thoughtful about how you present it, not just, I'm not saying change who you are, go get Botox, whatever. <laughs> you know what I mean, like it's not, that is not the, the point. It's like, what are the, what are the, the quirky bits about me that my ideal clients are going to resonate with? Are, are my ideal clients snarky too and, and think that it's hilarious when I make stop motion animated Lego minifigures dance in the music videos for songs I've worked on? Yeah, mine, mine are, you know, so <laughs> I'm going to do that, you know, and if they, if they see those videos and they're like, this guy is a, an idiot, what, what is he doing? Then clearly we weren't going to get along in the first place. Yeah, true, true. Yeah. Oh, I did want to say before we continue the last last questions, there's so many things that Carl has touched on or like glanced over, used a lot of terms. They all come up in the course. There's really great concepts in there. Uh, something that I wanted to talk about, which we don't have time to talk about unless Carl can summarize it in like two minutes, is the three types of niche, genre niche, service niche, and personality niche. And I think the idea of the service niche and personality niche are very unique to Carl's concepts. Because I didn't think about those things until he brought them up. And I was like, fuck, that's great. So first off, I will say that apparently you can pronounce it niche or niche or niche. All three are acceptable. So when I say niche, it's not because I'm trying to like passive aggressively correct you on your own podcast. Um, so, so okay, your service niche are going to be the people that find the most value in the particular service that you're providing. So let's say it's mixing or it's mastering or it's film scoring, you know, whatever it is that you, you do. Okay. And a lot of people, when they think of, of niche, they're thinking of genre niche, which is another, another little uh, circle in the Venn diagram. And that is, I think how people more commonly describe different styles of music, right? So when they think of, you know, niching down, they're thinking of mostly rock music or just uh, electronic and dance, but a slight offshoot of that, which I use in the course, is style niche, which is for all of the listeners who are thinking, well, I like all, all kinds of music, because a lot of us do feel that way. But I would argue that there are going to be underlying characteristics that you tend to be drawn to that may not be specific to a genre. For myself, I say that I love big, prominent, articulate vocals I love massive rhythm sections and I love lots of weird little nuances and textures that nobody notices till the 10th time they listen. So some pop music has, or has those characteristics. Some doesn't. Some metal has it and some doesn't. Some country does, some country doesn't. You know, So it's not specific to the genre, but there are underlying characteristics that really, I feel are like what draw me into the kind of music that I like. So if I want to listen to Lorna Shore and Skrillex 
and uh, chick, 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 all back to back. Like there are these like underlying things that that draw me in, even though those are stylistically very different from one another. And then personality niche are if you think about the artists you've worked with and the ones that you actually like really see eye to eye on things about. So whether that's creatively or just like the way that they communicate, just the general vibe. There's artists you've worked with that are just you love being in the room with them, and then there are artists that you loathe, or at least like you just cannot wait for the session to be over, right? Yeah. So your ideal clients are going to be in the center of the Venn diagram, right? They're going to fall into your service niche. They're going to, like for you, they're going to want great mixing, right? The genre niche or style niche, it's going to be kind of pop and pop adjacent, you know, clear, big, exciting, emotional styles. And they're going to be the kinds of people that you just really get along with. And your ideal clients kind of check all of those boxes. Amazing. Awesome. Obviously more in depth in the, in the course, but uh, yeah, man, I enjoyed watching the videos. I appreciate you sharing, uh, sharing it with me over the years as it's progressed. So as it progressed, Oh, I see what you did there. I'm sure no one's ever made that stupid dad joke on the podcast. Actually, no, 90 some episodes in and that's the first time. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Well, actually we should probably check your episode last time because if it happened, it happened there. (laughs) <laughs> that's a very that's a very uh, accurate observation there my friend but before we go i just for editing purposes i just need you to say wow travis this website is perfect no notes next question wow travis this website is perfect no notes next question please amazing okay so uh you know <laughs> you, you know where we're going from here it's a it's the traditional closing here and you answered this last time but maybe you have a different opinion have you chosen to redefine what success meant to you since last time we talked or would you like to refresh that concept for anybody i don't remember what i said last time you know i think last time you said you don't tell me don't tell me don't tell me i don't want to know i don't i don't want that to influence me got it because then i then i might might have changed more than i realized i think would be more interesting success for me is the the amount of people that i can help change and i don't mean that just directly like how many you know people buy the course or how many people hire me for coaching whatever but it's like if one person watches one of my you know tiktoks and that is a eureka moment for them and it helps them to find better connections with the client and that leads to a more natural creative process that ends up becoming a more emotionally impactful song that helps somebody else out you know that one tiktok then helped five six thousands of people right yep to me that's the success it's not about the money or about even like the vanity metrics of how many followers do I have or how many downloads does this episode get? It's about, you know, the, the intangible impact that I will never be able to measure or understand. Amazing. That was not what you said last time. Good. <laughs> but, uh, and if anybody wants to know what he said last time, you can go back to the uh, last episode. <laughs> I did want to say that, um, you know, I, I think it's the episode that's going to come out right before this or, or two episodes before you know, change really happens like one person at a time. So I think that that's like a noble goal is to help singular people. And then those people can then go forward and help one more singular person and blah, blah, blah. That's how change actually happens. Before you got to go, what is your current biggest goal that you can share with us? What's the next small step to take? Survive the next few days and just have the have the baby. <laughs> that's the... Uh, that is a fair goal. That's, I mean, that's it. That's Just it. Sur- survive the next couple of days until the birth of our second child. That's all I can do right now. 
so happy for you, dude. It's going to be uh, an exciting, exhausting time for you. Super stoked. I appreciate that. Looking yeah. forward to it. I'm looking forward to... I, I'm looking forward to the exhaustion uh, being from a, a human instead of from my own unstoppable anxiety. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, tell people uh, <laughs> where they can find you and if you they want to connect, whatever you want to pitch, go for it. Honestly, I say come to Instagram, either at Carl Bonner or at Bonner Branding, just because that's the easiest way to just you know send me a message. Let's talk. I like meeting people, like having conversations. If you couldn't gather that from this conversation here, I like talking to people. So yeah, come say hi. Amazing. Well, Carl, thank you, man. It's always a pleasure hanging out. Let me, uh, you know, text me a baby picture when it happens, you know, when you come out the other side of it. Appreciate you so much. Thanks for having me on. That's it for episode 94. Thanks to Carl Bonner for coming on the show. Definitely check his work out. It's a great angle to apply to your branding. Thanks to Stephen Boyd for the audio edit on this one. And finally, thanks to all of you for listening. If you've been enjoying the show, please share it with a friend and subscribe in your podcast player as well as on YouTube so that you don't miss out on anything new. That's it for now, and I will see you all next time.